we came to London to study and we wrote a dissertation here about the gin and tonic market and then our university when we graduated basically gave us our first investment. But we always had like little little small businesses when we were younger. So we would like sell flowers and then we would like sell corn on the streets. We produced our first batch just hand bottled it ourselves. It's so difficult to start uh, building our own production plants even now and I think even in the next 10 years we won't do it. I think one of our biggest challenges probably was finding a distributor or a wholesaler yep. because when we started like knocking on doors and getting like our first bars or restaurants that wanted to buy Double Dutch they, we didn't realize that they wouldn't buy directly from suppliers like us they would need to buy via a wholesaler. Our eating habits are changing. We're demanding better dining experiences and the food market has never been so competitive. Starting and succeeding with a food business is challenging, but some determined and passionate entrepreneurs are flourishing. These people have big dreams, big passion and big drive. They are disruptors, change makers and innovators. They see a positive future. Many say that food business is too risky. Some say that it has huge rewards. Are you up for the challenge? So today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Joyce and Raisa de Haas from Double Dutch, the premium mixer and soft drink business. They're super passionate and driven individuals. They clearly bounce off each other and support each other being twins and they've done incredibly well in establishing themselves and growing in this space a super competitive space they uh, have a very interesting recipe development um, system or process where they're really focusing on the molecular um, compounds of individual ingredients and how they complement each other um, really interesting conversation around that and yeah, their journey, um, really taking the positives out of, out of the challenges and just making things happen um, and just getting out there and, and doing it. Um, really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. Hope you do too. So it'd be great to talk about um, your background starting off. Um, I have worked with twins before in the past. Yeah. I know it's quite a special relationship. Um, obviously, I don't know, from people I've worked with are quite competitive, um, usually very positive and very driven, maybe it's connected. What was your experience growing up together and how do you think that impacted and benefited then your business relationship as you grew? Uh, well, we don't have any other siblings, so we've always been super close. Um, and we also went to the same schools and in the same classes, so we've always been super close. Um, and I think it's been great for Double Dutch because on the one hand side, we always knew that we would um, build a business together. We just didn't know that we would do it so early on. Um, but I think it was always a little bit in the stars. And I think the great thing is that you can trust each other 100%. Um, you really can feel each other like you don't need to do any tiptoeing and you just say what you say and the discussion gets on quicker, I think. Sure. Okay. And what about that competitive streak? Is that in you? Did you, did you compete against each other or were you driven because of that? or? Yeah, I think yeah. we definitely compete with each other uh, and I think like when we were younger, for example, if someone would study, I would feel bad because you're studying, so I also need to study and yeah. I think 
There's definitely competitiveness. Okay, so you're driving each other forward. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, what about your entrepreneurial mindset then? Like growing up, I know your parents had a wine or spirit shop. Um, did that mindset develop because of your parents and your family and the business that was happening there? Or is it something you kind of, I don't know, something consciously develop in you or how did I, that work? I think our parents, they had the, kind of like the spirit uh, business uh, very much as a hobby. So it wasn't their main business, but I think that definitely gave us kind of the passion for the spirits and, and mixer worlds. And, but they've always had their own business and I think that definitely helped with kind of us thinking that we also really wanted to do our own thing, but we always just thought that we would start later in life. Okay. Um, but then we went to, um, we came to London to study mm -hmm. and we wrote our dissertation here about the gin and tonic market. And then our university, when we graduated, basically gave us our first investment to start Double Dutch. So then we kind of, we were quite lucky that they gave us our investment really early on and then just started. But we always had like little little small businesses when we were younger. So we would like sell flowers and then we would like sell corn on the streets. Uh -huh. So I think, yeah. Okay. Yeah, too. <laughs> okay. Very good. And did you learn anything specifically from your, your parents' business mindset at all? Or yeah. was it kind of learning on your own with your own ventures? Uh, no, I think we've learned a lot from our parents just because they have their, they've always had their own businesses. And I think... It sounds so cheeky, but I think like hard work is probably the most important thing. Sure. Um, and persistence and just, yeah, it's all about making money, not about vanity or, yeah. Sure. Okay. And how do you think now, uh, being twins again, going back to that, and how Double Dutch has developed and grown, um, I guess also on the pure marketing side of things, how has that helped the business grow, do you think? Being twins? Yes. Um, I think it definitely, there's definitely competitiveness. So we are super kind of driven to uh, do more. Um, and I think the fact that we are so open to each other, we 100% trust each other, that we definitely been able to kind of cut our losses quicker. Um, and I think we are very much about trial and error. And if something doesn't work, then we kind of leave it behind and we go to the next and I think people say that you learn so much more from your uh, mistakes, and I think that's 100% true. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, I think it's great to like really that we have the same massive passion into the same industry, and I think that makes it extra special because we grew up with the same kind of background, we kind of grew our, in our each in our same, I do finance and operations and rice, so that's marketing yeah. and sales, but we still have like very much like the same input and our long-term vision is the same. Sure. So I think that's great. Sure, so you're supporting each other yeah. along the way. Yeah, very good. So tell us about then starting, getting Double Dutch going, like where did the idea come from in the first place and how did you get the wheels turning? How did you get it off the ground? Um, well, so our parents, they always had a distillery in our back garden as a hobby, so we kind of, grew up knowing lots of the local other distilleries and just build up really big passion for spirits and when we were 18 we moved to belgium to study at university there so all our friends everybody in belgium drinks beer we didn't really like beer so we just started experimenting with different types of flavors in our kitchen we would throw like lots of parties our friends would bring the vodka or the gin and we would make our own sodas it was just like a thing 
we thought was super fun to do and we would experiment with different types of flavors some were super nice some were disgusting <laughs> and like after a while our friends started calling us the tonic twins it was just like a I thing we did we used to make our own tonics and then um yeah did that for a couple of years in our kitchen graduated came to london and then um we came to london to do an extra master at ucl we wrote our dissertation about the whole gin hype and really explored whether we could do a more business opportunity within our passion and then when we graduated we got an award for most promising business id and then ucl gave us money to start the business so for, we used that money to produce our first batch okay and then took it from there okay so when you were doing your first mixers for your friends in school um did you have the idea and had like the vision to grow what you're doing now or was it something that just developed kind of as you went along no back then it was more it was something we liked it was something we enjoyed and it was something we were like looking forward to like oh we're doing a party friday which flavors are we going to try with it was more really a hobby and a passion but we never thought about doing something serious with it, serious yeah. with sure. it back then okay no. so what stage then did it become serious or did you say okay we have something here it could have legs uh, and let's let's go for it i think from the uh, moment that we got the investment from our university and uh -huh. that was kind of the first kind of person or institute that really believed in us and gave us investment to really start it and then we just thought we'll give it a try why not okay go uh, for it yeah okay so um i guess like first steps like getting production in place how did you go about doing that and how did you decide whether to do it yourself or to outsource it yeah was that through the university or I think we uh, hand bottled our first uh, production yeah. because I think especially <coughs> five, six years ago, it was the food and beverage industry was super much built around like all the big corporates and all minimum uh, order quantities were like a million bottles uh, exactly. yeah. size, which I think at the, it's definitely changed. over the past five years, it changed and minimum order quantities have gone down a lot. So I think it's much it, it's a lot better for uh, startups. So we produced our first batch just hand bottled it ourselves. Um, and then we just found uh, different production plants. Um, and we kind of always looked at third party bottling and never really thought about building it ourselves. Okay. Because I think it's so difficult to start uh, building our own production plants even now and I think even in the next 10 years we won't do it mm. um, because I think it changes a little bit the business model for us and we <coughs> are all about focusing 100% on building the brand and making sure. the best yeah. tasting mixers sure. not about doing manufacturing yeah yeah exactly so why did you decide to make the first batch yourself it was just a necessity you had oh, to yeah basically. we needed we needed yeah. to we had like a little uh, it was half ourselves half we had a machinery that we used uh, or like rented from this guy in North London and then we did uh, did like the carbonization ourselves were like in the night labeling but there were like machines there right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean <laughs> okay. so you're doing this in your flat no 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 it, at somebody's As place I yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. like a super small manufacturing plant okay yeah very good and then at what stage were you able to outsource it the second time so we did really wow yeah. okay so we did one uh, production batch where we did it ourselves and then thought we really start, <laughs> need to start selling <laughs> because, yeah. Okay, what size was that first batch, so? We, we did 6,000 bottles of our cucumber and watermelon and 6,000 bottles of our pomegranate and basil. Okay, and then the sales of that facilitated going to outsource or? Yeah, I think that gave us the time to, selling those 12,000 bottles gave us the time to expand our network, find production plans that were able to manufacturing on our required minimum order quantities yeah. and just find the right suppliers. Yeah. 
Okay, okay. And in terms of then your first listing, let's say for that first batch, where did you decide to approach uh, and why did you decide to approach those? We focused on our first um, listings very much on a super small niche area in the West End and just the five-star hotels and the Michelin-star restaurants and the super high-end cocktail bars. And I think for us, we definitely focused on getting distribution in a really small area. And we focus in about like one kilometer square, um, square kilometer. Radius. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that definitely helped us because we were available after a few weeks, months in about 15, 20 bars or restaurants or hotels in that kind of area. And it made us look bigger than we were because we were kind of available kind of concentrated mm. um, and that kind of helped us and we, then we just kind of expanded the radius from there yeah and i think the great thing was that for example our first listing was calvin at windows in the hilton and then he introduced us to the bar manager in the dorchester next door and then the in the dorchester they introduced us to their friends at harvey nichols and they're all i think for us and we've always been super grateful for it i think in the uk so many people really I don't know, everybody helped us. They were so yeah, open to and supportive to introductions and new people. And I think that's what it's all about. Like somebody knows somebody and then... Sure, yeah. makes sense. So you were focusing on one particular area to, I guess, build a name and your brand yeah. in that area yeah. and then to grow from that. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of, you mentioned you're going kind of premium level straight away and you remain consistent with that. Was that, obviously it was a conscious decision, but why start at that level? Um, yeah. Because I think it's to build a brand, it's a lot easier to start. I mean, you, it's really difficult to start mainstream and then go uh, premium. Mm. And I think if you start premium, there's kind of. We thought, and I think it still is, that uh, bars, kind of slightly more mainstream bars, look up to what, for example, the 50 best bars do and mm. what the five star hotels do, and they kind of look up to it. And I think it's kind of a um, waterfall effect if you start really premium it kind of drops top down and and i think it was also all about the brand positioning we knew that we are a premium brand of really high quality and so we wanted to have the right brand awareness in the right sites to really get right brand fit sure makes sense and was it a challenge getting into those places at all or yeah i think we've got like probably first hundred noise for our first yes or something okay Yeah. yeah It's persistence. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. um, and in terms of your roles, so I guess let's start there. So yeah. when you were initially going to get listings, were you working together or did you split your time and your, and your, your focus? We, in the beginning, just focused basically 99% on sales, sales, sales. And we yep. did that mainly together. Okay. Um, but then over the first couple of weeks, months, our roles kind of naturally degraded in. I started doing the financial and operational side of the business and Arisa started looking after a little bit more on the marketing side <coughs> um, and then when we interviewed or started hiring our first team members, Arisa started being more involved with that. So that's still how it is. I'm still involved with operations, finance and exports and Arisa does sales marketing in the UK. Okay, so that's just a natural division that happens? That's yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe she likes it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so what do you think or what would you suggest is the most important thing in hindsight now, looking back, like to focus on at the very beginning? And would you change anything from what you did? Or? Um, 
I think uh, the thing that I just starting, even if if you want to start something or you have an idea, I think the best thing to do is just launch it. I think we very we launched with a product uh, that we knew wasn't really 100% ready, both in terms of recipes as well as and flavor as well as branding. But we launched it and we iterated it along the way to what our consumers uh, said to what they wanted to change. And I think that really helped us making something that we had a really good customer base for. And I think if we've waited and we made it perfect and we waited until our recipes were uh, 100% finalized, then we would have gone to market probably a year later and then still would have probably had to change it. So I think just go out and just try it. And um, it doesn't really matter in the beginning if it isn't 100% there yet. Um, I think people really forgive you for that and people really want to give honest feedback and I think it's so different to actually go out to market and then sell and then get feedback rather than doing lots of kind of focus group and asking friends and families about feedback it's still different than when people actually pay for your product. Sure, sure. Yeah. So is that focused then on just getting sales and getting kind of revenue coming in yeah. and then that facilitates kind of growth and yeah. refining what you're doing? Yeah, but so. I think we were very clear and we very much knew that we wanted to focus on the on-trade, that we wanted to focus really on the premium tiers of the on-trade. We didn't yeah. want to go into retailers or grocery. We actually quite early on got like one of the bigger uh, groceries in the US that wanted to list Double Dutch, but we declined it. And I think there were sales opportunities that back then would probably have been game changing in terms of volumes or revenues but it didn't stick or it didn't really suit our vision and our long-term mm. plan. So we did decline it. And I think that was really a good decision. I think the good thing about Double Dutch is that we always have been like really consistent in where you can find it and how our quality is. And I think that's all about creating brand loyalty. Sure, sure. So you are very clearly focused on your strategy, yeah. like which people you want to target. Yeah, for sure. And I guess like you can't go too early as well, no? So if, especially if you're targeting the, the higher end restaurants or bars. You need to have a product that's going to be attractive to those yeah. and going to sell in those places. So I guess it's finding that balance as well, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's finding a balance between where you want to position in terms of pricing and customers and kind of perception. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So what kind of challenges did you have then at the beginning in getting it off the ground and growing kind of the initial stages? So many. <laughs> um, I think one of our biggest challenges probably was finding the whole, uh, finding a distributor or a wholesaler. Yeah. Because when we started like knocking on doors and getting like our first bars or restaurants that wanted to buy Double Dutch, they we didn't realize that they wouldn't buy directly from suppliers like us. They would need to buy via a wholesaler. Yeah. But a wholesaler wouldn't want to list a new product if you don't have customers already. So mm, it's, it's a bit chicken of the chicken and the egg. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was super super challenging. And I think we just kept on like networking, 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 and then coincidentally f- met like um, the owner of one of the wholesalers here in London on a dinner and he was super super nice and he said oh i'll list you for on a sale or return basis and then that really was our first step to really get it more on a higher volume basis in a sense going um so that was definitely one of the biggest challenges um i think finding building the right team um because we started right out of university so we never really uh, worked in a kind of corporate environment as well so we definitely didn't know how to find to and how to build the right teams i think 
That was a big challenge. Um, cash flow is always a challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that never so stops. Many. So many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Very good. Um, so you mentioned, I guess, getting your first distributor wholesaler, and it sounds like you were just getting out there and just making things happen. Um, in terms of building the brand and growing that and developing that, um, I guess, in the right focused way, um, kind of according to what you wanted it to be, yeah. uh, how did you go about building that brand? Uh, well, I think it's a bit multi-faceted. Um, I think yeah. on the one hand side, we really built the brand in the on-trade and really got consumers and customers and trade know about it or know about Double Dutch because we were in the Savoy and in the Dorchester and we built up like really good credibility for the brand. Um, and then I think it was all about our digital strategy has been quite important to really get to consumers directly in terms of what our parents are, if a cucumber and watermelon goes really well with white rums or pomegranate and basil goes really well with tequilas and really focusing on the right pairings and serving suggestions has always been like really important for us. And brand partnerships. Brand partnerships, I think it's gins, we still really love gins, but it's also going beyond gins and seeing what can we do with tequilas or what can we do with vermouths or cherries or different types of spirit brands and really seeing what the best marketing fit is in terms of on the trades, but also with events and festivals and that kind of things. Um, okay, and building awareness then of that brand, is that, yeah. well, you mentioned digital as well, but has social media been important for you? And how do you leverage that? Um, I think digital is super important. Yeah. Um, we never really, for us, kind of Instagram is definitely our main focus on social media. We never really did any kind of advertising or um, influencer campaign, so it was super organic. And then all of a sudden we had a decent number of followers. And I think from then, then we thought like, okay, this is quite a really good platform to talk to consumers about Double Dutch. Um, and then we started putting more efforts in it. But I think in the beginning we didn't really, it was not so strategic. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you mentioned you didn't do advertising. That's interesting. And you still don't do advertising? No. You don't do paid advertising? Okay. No. Why not? Really. I think on the one hand side, I think advertising and kind of, it's not even above line marketing, but um, I think for us, I believe much more in genuine press and PR coverage, such yep. as interviews or product placements or getting recipes in, in magazines or on websites. And I think people, really relate with genuine stories and I think just a, an ad where there's a bottle of double edge and a glass next to it um, I think that's really good to keep awareness for the really big brands but I think for smaller brands I think it's about getting your story out there and, and kind of more authentic PR sure yeah. I guess you're connecting with people a bit more genuinely yeah maybe, exactly also yeah um, yeah okay is that something you're going to stick to you think for the foreseeable future anyway well, no, I think, I hope we will be in a position where we're one of the bigger brands that we need to do is standard advertisements and yeah, yeah. that's how we keep awareness. I think it's all about life, at which stage we are in which in the life cycle of a brand. Yeah. Um, I think we've we started doing a few really, really niche focused um, advertisements, Yeah. but very, very minimal. Okay. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, so we got to talk about your recipe development. Yeah. I know I've, I've seen like molecular gastronomy mentioned yeah. a few times and 
the scientific approach to developing combinations and recipes. It was super interesting. How, I guess, first of all, why did you decide to go down that route? And how did you, or how do you develop your recipes? I think when we just started Double Dutch, we knew that we wanted to make flavors that were more exciting and more experimental. But uh, we didn't just want to make a normal tonic with a hint of something. We really wanted to be flavor first, not tonic plus. And we just kind of were looking for ways on how to develop mixes and tonic waters that were flavorful, but still brought out the best uh, of your spirit and didn't really mask the flavors of your spirit. So then someone just introduced us to that concept and we got really fascinated by it. And I think the key thing about molecular pairings is that you can be super flavorful, but it's all about linking ingredient profiles with each other's and looking at it from a more molecular point of view. So for us, our flavors are definitely flavorful and about, about different experimentation in flavors, but they are about bringing the best out of your gin or vodka or tequila. And they're definitely making your gin sing and not overpowering the flavor of the spirits. Sure. And I think if you're drinking a gin and tonic, it's about the gin and it's not just about the tonic. So your flavor of spirits should definitely really come true. Sure. Makes sense. And how does it work from a practical point of view? So are you literally going into a lab and you're playing with ingredients or is there kind of some research before that? Or, um, or? It's both. There's research before and then there's a lab where you, so basically what you do is one ingredient has different aromas within an ingredient. Yeah. And what we do with molecular pairings is that we share or um, combine yeah. ingredients that have at least eight of their key aromas in similarity. Yeah. So for example, cucumber and watermelon, they're actually from the same uh, family, so they even have more key aromas in uh, similarity. Yeah. And the idea behind this is that it mixes really well together, but then it also mixes better with the third ingredient. But it's all quite lab focused and we have people and uh, professional flavor developers that help with us. So we start from a research point of view. We know which flavors are gonna work well together based on their on the molecular pairings on paper and then with a lab we work together and see like oh maybe it's interesting to add this or let's um, experiment with this flavor and interesting super cool yeah. and how do you then take into consideration the market and i guess your brand to an extent to keep that consistency and then to attract the customer at the end of the day as well is that something you consider at that stage or is that next stage yeah so we definitely always kind of start with market trends, which flavors are kind of, we definitely look a lot at food as well and uh -huh. um, what, what, what are the trends in kind of the food world. Um, and then we kind of start from there. Uh, I think for us, we definitely always still launch with a smaller batch of products. We kind of go out to market and if we have consistent feedback on, for example, it needs to be sweeter or more acidity or more, I don't know, then we just change it in the next batch. Okay, interesting. Um, and I guess because your mixers, it's not specifically for gin or yeah. a particular product or mixer, or it could be drunk on its own as well. How do you find that balance then? Because obviously you're not just matching it to gin, you're kind of analyzing it as a drink on its own as well. So how do you get that kind of middle ground or, or that balance at least? It's about flavor uh, categories basically. So we pair with more uh, citric flavors or more uh -huh. um, herbaceous flavors or more, for example, bitter flavors or smoky flavors like tequila and mezcals. And I think for us, it's more about category of flavor profiles. And then that's where we focus on. So for example, a cucumber watermelon, 
works really well with London dry style gins, more citric gins, uh -huh. but also with the acidity of, for example, a Chardonnay wine or with vermouths on the slightly sweeter side. Um, so it's yeah, and the fact that they don't have quinine, that really all, we know from a background that that it does work much better as a soda. So then you can uh, really drink them on its own as well. So I think, for example, a cucumber watermelon is much more popular to drink on itself than, for example, our Indian tonic, just because of the quinine and the bitter aftertaste yes. uh, and the tasting profiles that consumers have from the past okay. decade. Um, but I also think the molecular pairings really help with that because it makes the science behind molecular pairings is that an ingredient really pairs easier within each other. So that's on the one hand side, you, you have your soda, your soft drink on itself, but then it makes it easier to mix it with a third ingredient. So that's to make the, the spirits. So I think the molecular pairings and the, the research and development behind our recipes really helps it that it's such a versatile product. Okay, interesting. So in terms of, you mentioned like the, you focus on categories of combinations of ingredients and flavors. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's important then to kind of um, be clear on that on the label and the promotional side? So people are matching particular drinks and categories to particular foods and spirits? Or is it just you kind of let them experiment on their own and find the pairing that works for them? We definitely uh, give guidance yeah. and our kind of perfect serves. But I think for us, it's definitely about flavor experimentation and we yeah. want people to try it out with different flavors uh, and different profiles and I think everyone just, I think there is definitely coming from the food world much more experimentation and sure. people looking at more Asian flavors and Mediterranean flavors and um, that's definitely translating into the drinks world as well. Sure, okay. And you mentioned kind of trends there to an extent as well. How do you see the market developing um, in mixers and soft drinks in general and flavor profiles and customer taste palettes. How do you see that moving? I think consumers, they want more choice than ever. And I think people are becoming much more experimental. I think the whole gin hype and the fact that there has been so many different types of gins on the market in the past couple of five years <coughs> has really helped the rest of the spirits category as well. I think people wanna are more open to explore rums on a, in a bar. They're open to I don't know, explore with long drinks and tequila and mezcals and it's all, I think people want to have more choice and more open and experiment with different types of flavors. I think in the mixer and in the soda category, I think more people are going to, or like more companies are going to enter. I think that's good for that category because that means again, more choice for consumers. And I think there's always going to be leaders in the category and hopefully that's going to be double dutch. But I think for us, it's all about <laughs> um, flavor innovation and yeah, I think the more companies that are going to enter, the better that is for consumers. Okay. I think the big trends that we are seeing is health movement. People want 100% natural. Mm. They want lowering sugars, lowering calories. There's still a massive premiumization where people are trading um, volumes down, but value is going up massively. And the whole low and no alcohol um, mm. movement is definitely growing a lot in the past 18 months. So I think people are drinking less but better quality, also lower ABV alcohols uh, is becoming more popular. Um, yeah. Sure. I think it's very clever how you've positioned yourself, so you're not aligning yourself with gin or a particular spirit or category. They're yeah. kind of more broad, I suppose. Was that conscious from the beginning or is that something that developed? Um, we, 
I think probably a bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. We initially, with our two first products, we um, developed them for white spirits. So <coughs> we knew the cucumber watermelon, we very much developed it for gins and vodkas. And the pomegranate and basil, we developed that for tequilas and herbal gins. So we knew that we were not just gin. But I think with the new products and the new trends and obviously market feedback, yeah. yeah, it evolved. Over okay. the years, we don't Okay, makes sense. So what do you think is the next big thing then? So gin, you think is gonna maintain its kind of dominance or what's coming next? Uh, <laughs> I think the gin still has a really long way to go. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of customer education in gin is never gonna go away anymore. People now are such gin experts. Mm. Um, but I do think that really helped with exploration in different categories. And I think f for me, I really think that the lower alcohol spirits are gonna take uh, um, go up in popularity. I think like for example, sherry and tonic, port and tonic, vermouth and tonic, those kind of long drinks that are not as strong as gin and tonic and kind of the spritzer style flavors like your Aperol Spritz and Campari Soda, but then variations on those, I think those are really becoming more and more popular. Um, this year. Okay. Yeah. I think it's also what we see more and more is like end tonic menus where yeah. people do a cognac and a cranberry tonic and a mezcal and for example the pomegranate <coughs> basil. And I think it's more it's not necessarily gonna be one category that is gonna be as dominating as gin has been for the past ten years. But I think it's more about the development of menus and more choice again and more experimentation, a bit more adventure in the in drinks menus. Sure, yeah. sure, makes sense. Okay, um, and you mentioned competition there as well. So you're saying it's a good thing more than anything. Um, how do you compete with the bigger players in the market? Um, I think product is most important. We always try to encourage all our customers and people that we uh, try to uh, sell to to do blind tastings against our uh, com competition. Um, I think branding is really important. I think 86% of Consumers now really want to know the companies behind the products that they are consuming. So yeah. I think the whole craft movement in beers is definitely helping us. And for us, we offer flavors that okay. no other mi uh, mixes on the market uh, produce. So I think it's about differentiation and kind of finding your own um, USP and, and niche in the market. Okay, so you, you're obviously keeping an eye on what the competition are doing, but do you kind of follow trends that they're setting as well? Or are you kind of not so interested, you're just doing your own thing? Not, Not really. in flavor. No. I think okay. for us, we are really about flavor innovation. Yeah. So I think with flavors, we really hope that we are the first ones in the most exciting flavors. Um, if we look at other <coughs> brands, it's more we look at the spirits categories. Yeah. So for example, rhubarb was one of the most trending flavor profiles in 2019. Uh -huh. So then we would look, if we, for example, made like a uh, limited edition rhubarb and pine needle. So I think it, for us it's more interesting and it also makes much more sense to look at food trends and spirit trends rather than going after the competition because... Yeah. Sure, sure, makes sense. Okay, um, I guess especially because you're in that innovative yeah. category yourself, so you're the trendsetters, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> Very good. Um, in terms of world issues, like recent world <laughs> issues, like Brexit yeah. and the virus, etc., <laughs> how has that affected you, if at all? And how are you dealing with it? Um, Brexit, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think Brexit, first of all, we kind of really um, uh, prepared for, it. Time for yeah. it. Yeah, the good are like, obviously not too happy with Brexit, but I think the good thing about it was that lots of companies had a lot of time to prepare for them. 
So what we did is we just split our production. <coughs> Uh, for we kept our production in the UK for UK markets and a warehouse in the UK again for UK markets, but set up a production plant in Europe and a warehouse in Europe and uh -huh. did the same in, for example, South Africa, so that we there's on every continent so that we don't need to deal with customs between Europe and uh, England. But I think the great thing with that is as well we are becoming 100% carbon neutral, so it's actually much better that we now have local productions. Mm. So there is a silver lining yeah, on everything. Sure. Uh, I think it's coronavirus, yeah, that's obviously terrible. I think yeah. uh, for the business, yeah, we aren't that Asian focused. We just see that any Asian leads that we had, they're all basically yeah, on hold. Nobody wants to even think about business there. It's just impossible, but. And do you think that there's now kind of people we had a trade show, for example, in Dubai last week, mm. and I think there was a lot less show up, and people are kind of getting more hesitant to go to public places, and um, yeah, I think it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean. But surely things are going to yeah. come back up again, yeah, you, you would think. Sure. Yeah, it's going to And I also think that we are small enough to, we will will probably not notice it in any of our sales figures. I think it's sure. For the, big brands, the yeah. really big brands that notice it, that half of their market share, they can't sell anything in Asia, like yeah. that has massive impact. I think for us, we are continuously growing and we're relatively small, so sure. it won't hurt us as much as the bigger brands. Sure, absolutely. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also good you, you kind of took the opportunity, I guess with Brexit in particular, yeah. to, I guess, take the positives out of it and make yeah. the most of it, I suppose. Yeah. Very good. Um, <laughs> let's talk about growth. So yeah. obviously you've done very well, continuing to grow. How do you manage that operationally um, and yeah, just in terms of building the brand and, and um, growing your infrastructure, uh, how, how are you managing that in general? <laughs> um, we've hired great people that can help us in our yeah. team. Um, I think on the one hand side, it's really important to find the right suppliers, building a long-term relationship with them and getting guaranteed production slots. That's for us probably the most important thing and getting priority on the glass lines. So all the production plans that we work with at the moment, we have priority on them. So that means that if anything happens, like for example, in 2018 with the uh, carbonization shortage, CO2 shortage, um, we now have guaranteed production slots and we know that we have capacity for the next two to three years, even if we would triple um, our revenues rather than double. So I think that's, that's the most important thing, getting the suppliers really signed up and lined up. Um, and then I think it's all about finding like a balance between we want to innovate and create new flavors every time, but you don't want to end up with 50 different SKUs. Sure. Uh, so it's working a bit between uh, maybe we need to do a limited edition rather than adding a new flavor to the range. Mm. Um, and finding that balance is probably a bit um, challenging. Sure. But I think, yeah, I think especially our team has been great in getting the right contracts in okay. place. Yeah. And how do you know like when it's time to hire somebody else? Because obviously you've got to manage cash flow as well. Yeah. I'm sure it's a tricky decision. Like when do you need that person? Yeah. I, I, I think really it's really obvious. 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 <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and I think we also probably made, our, one of our biggest mistakes <coughs> we did in the start is that we underhired and then uh -huh. very much hired for that year that we needed somebody, but the business would over, I'd grow them in 18 months time. And I think learning from our mistakes and knowing that we need, you'd better now hire for what you need in 18 months time. Sure. It's gonna be a better position to okay. be in. 
Okay, yeah. very good. And in terms of deciding which markets to grow into next, is it just you take it as it comes or do you have like a strategy to follow? I think it's definitely a piece of being reactive to opportunities that come along, but most of it is more proactive and our strategy to looking where, for example, gin and tonics trends are massively booming or um, which are kind of the biggest growth markets for um, spirit companies. And um, we speak with the IT and, and the UK government a lot on where are the best opportunities for mixer and tonic water markets and premiumization. Especially we look at a lot at where mark, two markets where premiumization is growing a lot. Um, so I think the most of it is uh, following a strategy. Yeah, and then finding the right partners and really getting partners in distribution that on the one hand side have the same vision as us, but also have the infrastructure uh, to have enough salespeople and marketing people and already have brands in a portfolio that are complementary to Double Dutch and are, have the same brand fit. Yeah. I think it's on the one hand side first um, really identifying which markets we want to go into and then seeing who are the best partners to really build a long-term relationship with. Okay, makes sense. And in terms of your production facilities then, so you mentioned you've got two now? Three. One, you, yeah. Three? Four, yeah. Okay. Three, three continents for production plants. Aha, okay. Um, and then obviously that's growing in line with your growth into different markets. But yeah. when do you decide it's time to open a new production plant? Um, we always we wait for our inner big growth markets where we see like oh this is a really good opportunity once we start we know like hopefully this is going to go well um so then we start looking at different filling partners and production plants already and then after about 14 months 16 months if certain volumes are hit then we make the decision to start producing locally i think it's always great if we can uh, combine markets so for example we're just gonna we just started in the us but we were already in canada so if we can combine those both volumes for local production there then that makes it a little bit easier than for just producing locally for canada for example okay it makes it more efficient in terms yeah, of more efficient like logistics. More economy, scale, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. logistics and yeah environmental yeah. Okay. okay, very good. And I know you're growing in different directions as well, uh, with your foundation starting. Um, tell us about that. How did that develop uh, and why you go down that route? Um, it kind of developed because we just noticed that, so we're doing a female uh, a scholarship for female bartenders and trying to kind of really nourish up and coming talents um, for female bartenders and mixologists. Um, and I think we wanted to launch it because I think the drinks industry is still super male dominated um, and I think there's loads of lovely projects coming up and um, there is definitely a big movement uh, towards more female um, inclusion. But I think for us, we just really wanted to do a scholarship where we are, we're, so we're doing kind of a year long project. We're um, picking three uh, bartenders, three female bartenders that were really taking on um, individual one-to-one courses for a year long and then we're doing lots of programs for groups of people, everyone that really wants to join really, not just female bartenders but also any kind of bartender to learn for example about how to build your profile on social media but also how to uh, make your stock holding in your bar more efficient or how to enter cocktail competitions and kind of doing lots of different areas in, in the bartender world. Um, 
So yeah, I'm really excited about it. Okay. Sounds exciting. Yeah. Sounds very good. And is it like a course or a kind of a program you, you kind of guide people through or how does it work? So we're funding three proper bartending schools yep. for three people. And then across the year we're doing every month kind of courses, workshops uh, and master classes. So we're doing kind of a variety of every, everything. People can join once in a while and, and skip some classes or they can join every single class. Um, we're really hoping to be flexible and kind of work together with uh, the bartending community and really try to kind of um, help bartending talent and, and sure. yeah. support the younger yeah. generations. Yes. Very good. You may find the, the next double Dutch maybe coming through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Very good. Um, and talk to us about women in business. Obviously, you're in that space as well. You do a lot of talks in that front. Um, I guess, how has your experience been? Um, I guess the, the, the negatives and the positives of it and working together in that space as well. I think there's definitely challenges, um, but I do think for us, we definitely always looked at it from a more positive outlook. And I do think it kind of becomes how you look at it. And I think for us, we looked at it from the start that we are probably slightly more memorable because it's such a male dominated industry and um, that people don't forget us as easily. And I think there are now such amazing programs to put female founders on the forefront as well. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the time to be alive, to be a female founder. Yeah. Um, there's still a long way to go, but I do think there's, we all are going totally in the right direction. Yeah, sure. and I also think it's about embracing what institutions are doing to yeah. really make the gender equality better. Um, I think we all need to look at it from, it's important to really work on it and really be on the forefront from it. But I think it's all about getting the positivity out there rather than the negative things about it, think the press asking how is it to be working in a male, as a female in a male dominated market. It shouldn't be that question, it should be just be how is it to be a founder in sure. the food and beverage industry, I don't know. I think we're really getting there, but I think it's all about, okay. yeah. it has had the benefits as well for us. Yeah, sure. that, of course. And I do think it's about entrepreneurship and it doesn't really matter whether a female or male, it should just be about... Just an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. Very good. And can you see like tangible kind of changes happening or even throughout your time in business? Have you seen it going in the right direction or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah, okay. 100%. Yeah. I think there's much more programs. Yeah. Uh, I think people are most... I think companies around us are becoming more flexible for, for example, um, uh, girls working in, in, in kind of working times to be more flexible that it's not just nine to five that we we also have two people kind of coming in more on a flexible basis and kind, kind of around their family life um, I think that's definitely changed over the past two years a lot and you have so much like more female finders also in the spirits industry like the Zeko girls or Galeno girls I mean sure. Much more female founders, and I think the good thing is that everyone's kind of sticking together, and yeah. I think all like all the women are kind of sticking together and helping each other, and kind of. But hopefully not excluding the guys. Exactly. But I do think it's definitely super supportive environment. Yeah. 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 I guess for not excluding guys. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, I guess it 
gives confidence as well, like fundamentally, no? Yeah. Gives people kind of the support and yeah. confidence to go and do it Definitely. without something kind of pulling them back at all. No, 100% do yeah. it, yeah. Um, you guys come across as super confident and super grounded and, and positive. Um, where do you think that comes from? Do you think it's like back to your childhood and your family business and entrepreneurial spirit that you have? Or is that something you've developed or you work on or what, what do you think? I don't think I'm so confident. Really? Oh, well. <laughs> Um, I so think I maybe on the confidence that it looks like it or we feel more comfortable because we are always with the two yeah. of us so you can yeah. bounce back on each other mm. even now you're like asking us a question we could like say like mm, you can answer it yeah, too. <laughs> I don't know so I think sure. maybe it looks like it and um, I think grounded and just I think it's all about yeah we uh, grew up in a family where parents were very much like you need to do hard work and if you want to get somewhere it's all about thinking about the long term and just persistence. So I think, yeah, it's important. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. I guess the, the twin effect as well. Yeah, right? exactly, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think drives your uh, kind of the, your your motivation to succeed? So you have a vision, you want to grow the business. Yeah. What do you think is keeping you going? And through the hard times, what is that kind of fuel behind you? Uh, well, for me, I think it is. We really build a product something that we were massively passionate about and something that we really did as a hobby and then for some reason we were able to make a business out of it and then now we have like 20 people in the team and we are exporting to 25 countries and i think the most amazing thing is is that it's really a product that i 100 million percent believe in and you see it somewhere and i don't know for example you go on holidays randomly to a place in greece and then you see double dutch on the table like those kind of things are the most I think fulfilling, amazing yeah, yeah. things that make me really proud. And I think with even if you have lots of downs, obviously there are lots of downs, but you have the two of us to pick each other up. And I think you still have your product. There, it's not a like a service or a technology. You really can feel it. You'll have a double dutch if you feel down. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. feel so much better. Exactly. <laughs> I just Very think that you have lots of downs. And I think if you have a co-founder, to kind of be with the ups and downs, it's a lot easier. And sure. if you're super passionate about it, then sure. it will be fine. It's easier, <laughs> yeah. makes sense, makes sense. So what's the future hold then? What's what's the next kind of growth steps? Where do you see the next five, 10 years? Um, world domination. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> uh, for us, we're definitely focusing on going to the UK, building more distribution uh, here, definitely um, both in the bar side as well as on the supermarket retail side. Um, the US is a really exciting opportunity for the next 18 months for us. Um, lots of MPD, yeah. so we're doing lots of like spirit partnerships and exactly. we're really making some exciting new products. I'll send you some samples. Please do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think expanding the team, getting more people on board to really help us with our growth and really international distribution as domestic distribution. We're also just starting into like uh, travel category, so going into airlines, cruise lines, that's like a new category. There's still so much to explore and so much to go after. Sure, um, yeah. sure, very good. World domination, sounds exactly. like. <laughs> very good. Um, so what would you say were your biggest learnings if you're to choose one or two things? So from the very beginning, from your idea through to now? Um, I think first learning is, what we did well and what I would give as a tip to everybody is just get out there and start as soon as possible. There's no point in making a product in your basement waiting two years for it while you think you're perfectionizing it 
But then you bring it to the market and your customers don't think it's perfect. I think it's all about getting per market feedback and iterating and keep on iterating it. Um, don't lose sight of cash flow. I think we Ooh. definitely focus on sales, sales, sales so much. Um, and I think you need to have a super solid foundation of uh, finances in the beginning. So I would definitely invest more in that. You know, I would start all over again. I think keeping track of everything. We built such a good network and um, business cards as a random thing. And we never really put like, we never recorded it. Um, I wish I was more organized from the beginning. Okay, um, organization. Organization. Uh, <laughs> very good. Yeah. And any advice for somebody, let's say who has an idea for a drink. Yeah. Um, so trying to get into the drinks business and to succeed in that. What would you advise? Um, I think do definitely, I think your pricing strategy is super important. Once you launch with a pricing strategy, it's really difficult to increase. You can always go down and decrease your pricing, but even I think do a lot of research on where you want to sit. Um, so, so that's margin and price. Margin and price and, and yeah. look at where your competitors are and where kind of the benchmark lays and <coughs> understand, try to understand what retailers are looking for in terms of margins, what distributors are looking for in margins, what wholesales are looking for and kind of try to figure that in from the start because once you go out with pricing, it's really difficult to change. Hmm. Else? Speak with complementary products in your industry. I think for yeah. us, Spirit brands have helped us a lot to one understand the industry when we just came here in the UK. They've helped us with new customers, with new marketing, branding, and I think it's all right. This industry is one so fun <laughs> and it's so close and everybody knows each other and everybody is so helpful and supportive. Uh -huh. So yeah, just I, reach out. Just reach yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. If we can help, reach out to us. <laughs> so are they like brand collaborations or are you just speaking to the spirits companies and they're just Both. offering support? Both. Both, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Very good. So just go for it. Get exactly. out there and yes. make it happen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. I uh, love Thank what you. you're doing. You're super positive and driven. <laughs> so uh, best of luck for the future. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.